New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Satanism Revisited. My guest is Mitch Horowitz, the Penn award-winning author of many books, including Occult America. One simple idea how positive thinking reshaped modern life, the Miracle Club, and the Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages. His latest book is called The Miracle Habits. Mitch is based in the New York City area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. Always good to be here. We're going to explore your personal journey today and uh, the fact that you are publicly known to be and acknowledged to be a Satanist, although as I understand it, you don't belong to any organizations. You don't have a card. You're not a card-carrying Satanist, uh, so to speak. But uh, I know it's a very personal journey for you. You're, you're not representing anybody but yourself. But I'm I'm delighted to explore it because uh, as you've written and many people have written, the very concept of Satanism is perhaps one of the most misunderstood uh, concepts of the modern era. Yes, I, I probably couldn't have chosen a term if I had sat down and tried that was more prone to misunderstanding. And at the same time, I believe there is an esoteric tradition in the West that can be properly referred to as Satanism, although it's also extremely individualized, which is entirely appropriate given that we're talking about history's great rebel, uh, at least in the parabolic sense. And I have a history of using terms that are considered uh, verboten or are thought of as things that we want to kind of sweep away and rename in a more respectable fashion. I've approached the term new age that way. I've approached the term occult that way. I've approached the term positive thinking that way, which a lot of people regard as being intellectually unserious. But I reject a term being defined or described only by those who use it as an epithet or only by its critics. Uh, for example, I very actively use the term ESP. Uh, there are some people who will update that term and call it psi or call it something else. And I believe that some of this original language has a historical integrity. And if one looks at the uh, events, the parabolic events, the ethical events of Genesis 3, for example, uh, you find uh, a adversarial figure in the form of the snake that later on was associated with the, the Hebrew term uh, shaitan or enemy or adversary, Satan. And I think that within that book, you find a very important sounding point of view, expression of something very deep in the Western psyche. And I've elected to use uh, the phonetic English rendering of the term that became associated with that. And it's been a very personal, very intimate uh, journey. I also might add a, a journey that, uh, as I think our, our discussion today will illuminate, has an honor and an ethics and a reciprocity of its own, things that are of deep concern in my life. People who are viewers of this channel can refer to several 
interviews that are already in the archive that deal with Satanism. But one fact that I think is almost undeniable that is in the minds of many people who are traditional Christians and Jews, the word Satanism is associated with uh, the epitome of evil. Correct. Correct. And I, of course, I reject that that usage. Uh, I think that we as a culture are extremely forgetful and imprecise in our use of language. I recognize that that term is so deeply embedded in the Western psyche as a metaphor for evil that even I may have tilted at too great a windmill in trying to use that term in a way that I think is esoterically defensible in a way that I think has greater historical integrity than the use that has come to be surrounded, uh, that has come to surround it. Uh, My view of the satanic, based on some of the source books of Western civilization, ranging from Genesis 3 up through The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake up through Paradise Lost, and more contemporary works by artists and and by figures of of spiritual and, and social provocation, is that The satanic, mythically speaking, esoterically speaking, is that which is rebellious, anti-heroic, usurping, revolutionary, against the grain, outside. And I think that that force, that palpable force, both parabolically and I would argue extra-physically within Western life, and as a, a, a source, a wellspring, a vortex of ideas, an emanating beacon of ideas, and extra physical actualities within Western life is an authentic esoteric tradition, if an anarchic tradition, anarchic in the sense that it's very, very heavily defined by each individual for him or herself. You started out uh, our discussion by very rightly saying, I belong to no organization. There are organizations I feel sympathy for, uh, which I would defend. Uh, whose leadership and output I admire, but I can uh, belong to none in, in this in this march of my life. And I think terminology and phrasing has great power, which is why I've chose to use that core word of Satan or Satanism rather than something that would be more acceptable and less controversial, like Prometheus or Prometheanism or even Luciferianism. You know, I find no philosophical necessity. Uh, not to use that term. I find maybe a diplomatic necessity not to use that term, but I, I, I never really stood on a diplomacy, although I do stand very deeply on respect that I have for other people, and I can understand somebody not wanting to associate themselves with that term, uh, but again, more for reasons of diplomacy than for reasons of the search. You've used a word that I, I'm a little unfamiliar what you mean by it, the word parabolic a few times. Could you define what you meant? Sure. You know, there's a, a way of thinking that myth is truer than history in the sense that myth gets at human psychology. So, for example, we know that the story of Icarus, the young man whose wings made of wax and flew who cl- and, and who flew too close to the sun, is not literally true, but we understand that story as being psychologically true. So I would say that's a parable. That's a parable of human nature. Uh, a part of the story that gave birth in the Western psyche to the idea of the satanic 
appears in Genesis 3, in which Eve is tempted by a snake in the garden who tells her, you've been deceived, you've been misled. Uh, The creator is telling you that if you eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, which some biblical scholars believe, by the way, is synonymous with the tree of life. Both trees are mentioned in Genesis, and they're not as clearly demarcated as one might think. That if you eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. Uh, but in fact, you won't die. You'll be illumined. And as it happens, uh, contrary to much casual uh, reading of the story and contrary to a kind of uh, quoted but not examined uh, tradition in the West, the serpent did not lie. And Adam and Eve, first Eve, then Adam, were Uh, illumined, and they were also, of course, expelled from paradise. And we think that the after story is a tragedy in which they gave birth to these two sons, later other offspring, but the two sons, Cain and Abel, were involved in an act of fratricide in which Cain murdered his brother. Eve had to experience pain in childbirth. Adam had to experience the sweat of his brow while tilling the land. But my contention would be that that in itself is a parabolic picture of the human situation in as much as the myth of Icarus is, in that there can be no creativity without friction. There can be no growth without the leaving of the familiar, without shedding the comforts as a snake sheds its skin of the known, the given. And that wishing for that path, wishing for that return to what might be deemed paradise is in effect wishing not to be human at all you know if we were like kept poodles in a garden of paradise where all food and and physical needs were taken care of uh, we couldn't justly be called human we would be no different from the flora and fauna in the garden itself which is what these human figures were until the snake traditionally a symbol of of wisdom and provocation in cultures all over the world, including various primordial cultures that were separated by great time and distance and language from the Hebraic culture that over the course of generations gave birth to the books that we call the Old Testament, have the snake as a, a, a figure of wisdom, a usurper within their cultural tradition. You find that, for example, among shamans in South America. You find that in peoples from Polynesia to Siberia. It's a universal human picture. It's a universal human parable, to get at your question. And that is what we in the West eventually came to associate with the satanic, and yet there were dissents from that association as being evil. Uh, William Blake uh, dissented from that. Uh, Percy Bush Shelley dissented from that. In some respects, John Milton dissented from that. Uh, There are more modern figures like an Anton LaVey or a Michael Aquino and many others who dissented from that. I dissent from that. So that's the lineage uh, that I I see as at least part of a, a family tree. Now, my understanding of Milton is that uh, he didn't intend to dissent from that vision, that uh, he wrote Paradise Lost in order to justify the ways of God to men. And what happened is that he uh, inadvertently, probably unconsciously, wrote about Satan as a heroic figure. Every literary critic for generations has, has seen this, but it's not clear that Milton himself saw it. Yes, well, I think that's a good point, and it's interesting what comes through us. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, just 
earlier today, I was speaking with a very gifted novelist whose book is being published uh, probably in 2022. And uh, he was explaining to me that he also wanted to write a work of spiritual philosophy, of occult philosophy that would come out after the publication of his novel. And he was concerned about how he would be seen. Is he a novelist? Is he a spiritual philosopher? Is he an occult guy? You know, who is he? And I said, Friend to friend, I would say, don't worry about that because the public will make its own decision as to who you are and what you're about. You know, I can't lead people to one conviction or another about what my work is. You know, I've written as a historian. I've written uh, self-help books. I've written as a practical spiritual philosopher. Uh, I've used a, a term like Satanism. It's gotten me kicked out of some organizations, events canceled on me. You said to me, hey, let's do a whole show about it and talk about it. So people are going to bring their own interpretation to whatever tone, idea, work it is I put forth in the world. So I think what you're saying about Milton is historically very true. And that, too, is a portrait of, of, of human nature. We can set whatever intentions we want in terms of what my neighbor will think. But my neighbor is going to think what he thinks. Well, I'm happy to do many more programs with you about this subject. I, <laughs> it's a very deep subject. <laughs> it's a profound subject. But let, let me get to the um, deeper issue that uh, troubles some of my own viewers, uh, and, and that is the nature of evil it, itself. Let's assume, I'm, as, as a working hypothesis, that Satan is not nearly as evil as, as people ascribe to him. But then is there still, in your mind, a demonic force that represents pure evil, that tries to tempt people to, to murder and to steal and to abuse the innocent? Well, in terms of the human psyche, I'll talk about this in terms of human nature and then respond in terms of the question of the extra-physical. In terms on the scale of the human psyche, I believe there's no good and evil. I believe there is empathy and spite. There is that polarity. And obviously, most of us at different times, at various times, find ourselves sliding in the direction of one polarity or another. There's usually not a being who is one of total empathy, although that's certainly an ideal for some people. There's usually not a being who is one of total spite. Everybody has their own backstory, their own influences, their own needs. But where you fall on that scale of empathy, spite, in terms of human nature, I think is uh, real. I don't think our uh, scholastic concepts of good and evil uh, are real. I think empathy and spite is the scale that I think on. And if people were capable of looking at themselves on that scale, which most of us are not, or we are maybe only in terms of momentary glimpses, it would bring a whole new uh, sense of measurement and estimation to how we view ourselves. And I'm much more interested in how we view ourselves than I'm interested in how I view a third party whose life I can never fully know. I may have to regulate that third party. That third party might do things that are dangerous or violent or harmful and requires social regulation or personal regulation or what have you. But the empathy spite scale is one that would revolutionize our view of self if we were capable of really pursuing a view of self. Now, the other question you asked is, is there some force that urges one 
along on that scale that urges one towards uh, the empathic or that urges one towards the spiteful or that urges one towards acts of violence, not necessarily or not exclusively physical violence, but maybe emotional violence or something of that nature. It's an interesting question because my my view of of life is, as you and I have discussed in previous episodes, uh, one in which uh, humanity conducts both a physical and extra physical existence. There is physicality. These forms that we find ourselves in are going to decline. There will be mortality. There's never been any exception to that. And and humanity also has an extra physical existence. And I think that goes beyond testimony. Uh, we have so much evidence, including in the field in which you specialize, psychical research, that demonstrates the anomalous transfer of information in laboratory settings, for example, and fields like neuroplasticity and questions that are put to us uh, within quantum theory and the more radical edges of placebo response studies and so on and so forth. It seems to me that it's a given in the here and now that we have an extra physical existence. Now, I think that the ancients, our primordial ancestors all around the world, had a much deeper knowledge and understanding of nature than we have, a much more personal, intimate connection to it. They lived and died by the cycles of planting. Their lives were shorter. Death was a palpable presence. Uh, and the uh, vagaries of nature could very easily mean the difference between life and death at any time and at any moment. And they had an investment in 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 knowing nature in ways that don't that's not as urgent for us 21st century people i think that they identified extra physical energies and that they personified or deified these energies gave them names and attributes like zeus minerva set satan kali anansi you know all these different deities that are found in cultures all across the world and there are archetypes that repeat in cultures all across the world just i was referencing the snake earlier and i think our ancient ancestors sought relationships with these energies these personified or deified energies including petitionary relationships and i uh, that to me is what what prayer is it's the seeking out of a relationship sometimes a petitionary relationship with one of these personified energies are there energies that drive the individual toward acts of uh, spite in the same way that there are seem to be energies that drive the individual toward acts of uh, empathy i would have to say yes i think that 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 must exist insofar as if these energies are could be called intelligences and if they have ethical lives well you know ethics as it's been argued to me by our mutual friend dean radin and i think he's correct ethics arise from the emotions ethics arise from the emotions um and so it would seem to me that there's probably a wide range of ethical, emotional uh, qualities that could be ascribed to uh, unseen energies if deifying or personifying them is a correct gambit. And I think our ancient ancestors, since this activity was common around the world, probably had a correct gambit. So I would say yes uh, to your question. 
But I would also say that it's overwhelmingly likely, given our perspective and the limitation of our position, uh, that we don't have any ready vocabulary words handy, whether it be Satan or Lucifer or anything else, uh, that can allow us, as though looking up in a, in a directory, to figure out uh, who's on the side of spider empathy. And usually, uh, just based on human nature, we have a, a way of getting these things uh, askew, if not backwards. I'm reminded of uh, a well-known case. I think it was in the New York area, the murderer, son of Sam, a, a repeat murderer who claimed he he was prompted to kill people because he heard a voice urging him to, to do that. Uh, that would seem to be you know, the kind of case that uh, many people would ascribe to a satanic or a demonic entity. Well, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up, actually. Uh, there is a show on Netflix uh, that, that reinterprets, that's coming up, a documentary, that reinterprets uh, the Son of Sam case uh, as an act, uh, as an expression of some sort of satanic abuse uh, crimes. And uh, that show is based heavily on the, the work of a now uh, deceased journalist, and I was supposed to be part of that show, but due to the COVID crisis, the shooting schedule uh, got disrupted and that never occurred. But I am participating in a podcast that the producers are assembling around the show uh, later this month. I'm speaking to you in January of 2021. And the case I made to the producers and the thing that I would have said if, if COVID hadn't disrupted the shoot schedule, and but that I'll, I'm sure I'll be saying on the podcast, is that the great uh, uh, unasked question within that uh, framing, that reframing of uh, the Son of Sam murders uh, as an expression of some sort of satanic abuse crime is that the journalist who spearheaded that theory and who was a dogged uh, researcher and a researcher uh, whose, whose productivity and work ethic I salute he failed to ask himself one basic question. In fact, it seems, based on my reading of his work, never to even have occurred to him. And that one basic question is, what is theological Satanism? What am I even talking about? You know, he referenced groups like the Process Church and other groups. The Process Church was, was a group that had a reputation for Satanism in the late 60s, early 70s, but seemed never to ask himself, beyond the framework of what you'd see in a Hammer horror movie, or beyond the framework of what you'd see in a movie like The Exorcist, I happened to just happen to be wearing a shirt with a Japanese movie poster for The Exorcist. I wasn't trying to be cute for our show. It just was the shirt I had available. <laughs> but then I realized that after the fact. But, you, you know, if you frame your definition of Satanism around things that come out of uh, lurid uh, press reports, uh, often from the past, that come out of uh, entertainment, that come out of very uh, orthodox, uh, if mainstream, uh, readings of religious literature, you're failing the one test of field work, which is what is the experience of my subject? That's the purpose of all field work. You know, what is the experience of my subject? And if one reframes or attempts to reframe this network of relationships that are claimed to have been found around David Berkowitz, the, the killer who propagated the Son of Sam crimes, and to define these as Satanism, first define Satanism, because the Process Church didn't understand Satanism in any way as it's understood in a kind of 
uh, traditionalist or entertainment-based uh, framing. Uh, they view God as a, a quadruple part being, and one aspect of God, the, the Luciferian, was enlightening and, and light-bringing, and there were higher and lower iterations, and one was aiming for the highest iteration of self-expression. There was a whole theology, which may or may not be compelling to the individual, but to fail to ask the question as if to define Satanism based on whatever the first uh, search result is that comes up on Google is to def fail to define one's basic terms. So um, what David Berkowitz experienced, I have no idea. I assume he experienced psychosis. Uh, he later uh, denounced uh, what he said he was attached to and claimed to be a, a born again uh, Christian. Um, I don't know that his uh, uh, testimony in and of itself uh, gets us uh, exactly close to the truth. We all come up with stories to tell ourselves about ourselves to live with what we've done. The pain and the anguish that, that he caused uh, as a murderer, if he wanted to come to some honest terms with what he had been done, I think should be judged in terms of the the violence and the anguish that he caused, not in terms of reframing his own story along some mythical lines so that he traveled from darkness to light. I think that serves a narrative that first and foremost benefits the individual, but is not necessarily good historicism. To switch gears a little bit, one of the primary stories of, of the Jewish people, and you and I were both raised in the Jewish tradition, is, is the story of the Exodus. That's, that's really the central story. And in that story, uh, the God of the Hebrews takes the life of innocent Egyptian children. That, that story actually prompted me to, uh, in effect, leave Judaism. I couldn't understand why uh, a, a just God would do such a thing. Uh, and and yet one has to say when you look at Yahweh or the God of of the ancient Hebrews, uh, I don't think they had a belief in Satan at all. I think they had a God who who had all qualities, uh, good and bad, who uh, embraced everything. I wonder if you'd like to comment on that. Well, it's a very interesting observation. You know, the the the, the Hebrews. It's funny we tend to superimpose our contemporary interpretations of religions onto the ancient people themselves. And that could be a very, uh, that could be an epic act of disclarity because the ancients themselves, as you were alluding, they didn't have these same reference points that we have. Like for example, the Hebrews as a tribe in the Mediterranean basin or the biblical lands, along with hundreds and hundreds of other tribes, we're profoundly concerned with survival. We're profoundly concerned with just making it, you know, from one season to the next, as many such uh, uh, tribes were, as many desert-dwelling people were. And so, for example, people today will look at uh, what appears to be prohibitions against homosexuality, for example, in the uh, in some of the early books of of the old the so-called Old Testament. And I think it's a huge mistake to look at any of that from a political perspective. Some people who are right-wing will say, see, this is how our ancestors did it. This is how we ought to do it. And then some people who are 
progressive will say, you know, this is the legacy that we have to overthrow. This is the stuff that's oppressive that we have to get rid of. I don't think the Hebrews understood it in that way at all. They didn't have any of our political reference points. They were distinguishing themselves from whomever the tribe was over the next hill. So the idea of tattoos or the idea of graven images or the idea of sexual practices, dietary practices, the clothing that one would wear, not mixing certain types of garments, you know, to a certain degree, I think, these were local efforts to draw lines of distinction between oneself and some other group and wrestle in however fitful a way with creating a, 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 a civil society, uh, however flawed it may have been from our perspective today of creating a series of laws, thou shalt and thou shalt nots, that abetted a survival, that abetted survival. Now, certainly no one can say that the Old Testament in terms of the its historicism is an unrealistic book in that you know one could one could every individual can come to his or her own private reckoning about the question of miracles but it depicts a human situation that's very brutal and that's very tough and that's marked by warfare and conflict and friction and a very tough justice and legality that probably reflected uh, what it was like to try to survive in the desert at that time and to try to come to some set of rules at the same time that would mitigate the brutality of life. Now, uh, one of the books of scripture that I was always touched by as a kid and remains so t today is um, a, a, a passage that's read on, on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, in which uh, the Hebrews would set a goat out into the desert with their sins cast upon it, uh, to be devoured by what we would understand as a kind of demonic being in the desert. Again, I'm using our contemporary language uh, named Azazel. And when I heard this name read from the pulpit when I was a little kid uh, attending an Orthodox synagogue, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. And I thought, wow, these people lead a much more mythical existence than, you know, Mrs. Shapiro taught me at Sunday school at Belrose Jewish Center, you know, in Queens. Uh, these people lead a much more mythical existence than I had understood, you know, through many, many years of, of Jewish education when I was a kid. And as I think you were just alluding, they didn't have this kind of good guy, bad guy image of these, these entities, these expressions of the extraphysical that we uh, superimpose onto them uh, today. And uh, a lot of contemporary practice doesn't come to grips, in fact, with some of the supernatural elements of Scripture, not necessarily things that we would describe as miracles, but fallen angels and giants and different beings and a so-called demonic figure like Azazel. I use demonic in the modern sense, not in the historical sense, where it, that word too you know, it meant what we would call spirit or genii. It wasn't, it wasn't a word that was laden down with the negativity that uh, we bring to it today. So the ancients functioned from a very, very different set of compass points. And that's why I refuse to rely upon the compass points that we've settled on by consensus today, although I take ethics and reciprocity uh, and a sense of human wholeness and community with deepest seriousness. You know, I've done a series of interviews with Betty Kovacs, and she raises a very interesting point that when people worship a god and they ascribe to that god only good qualities, uh, such as uh, at one point, uh, Apollo 
the Greek sun god, was both a god of darkness and light. But when he became a god of just light, or Jesus is another god who uh, to whom only positive features are ascribed, and Satan could be thought of as as the twin, the uh, reverse of Jesus in in some systems. That uh, those are the people who commit the most heinous acts because they deny their own shadow at the same time. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, in this country and in Europe in the 1980s, there was the so-called satanic panic where people were being accused uh, of all kinds of acts of horrific ritual abuse against children. Um, in virtually every case, these were completely innocent people. Sometimes they might have had some connection uh, to the occult, either artistically or spiritually. Most times they had no connection whatsoever, and there were advocates and dominant opinion-making organizations, including religious groups, that uh, contributed to and stirred up this completely fictitious satanic panic. And look what was actually going on at that time. There were mass instances of unreported or underreported acts of sexual child abuse within the Boy Scouts of America and within the Catholic Church. And I say that with, with a great sense of melancholy and a great sense of somberness. Uh, people were subjected to acts of terrible abuse. Uh, the perpetrators were often uh, protected. The abuse was either underreported or unreported. And we know about this today because of survivor lawsuits. There are uh, probably at this point about 25 different large Catholic organizations that have had to declare bankruptcy in order to cope with paying out damages in survivor lawsuits. The Boy Scouts of America itself uh, has had to declare bankruptcy in order to shield itself from something on the scale of 80,000 uh, survivor lawsuits, part of class action suits. And I say all this not in some polemical way. Uh, I don't wish any uh, uh, of, of, of this to have occurred on, on any scale, whether it's a group that I like or dislike or have connections to or don't have connections to. It's a mass human tragedy. I bring it up for the simple reason that very often what we accuse people of on the fringes is a projection in some way or another of what's being perpetrated and unacknowledged within mainstream organizations, which themselves make up the power structure judicially or religiously of a given society. And people are prepared to believe the story because there are unaddressed, underreported or unreported crimes going on. Uh, what we don't do is part the curtain on the question of where is this criminality going on, if it's real at all. If it's real at all, or is it some response to a, a vast change in culture and society that uh, we're not dealing with directly, so we create these frightening metaphors, and the metaphors themselves become a stand-in for the issue that we're not addressing. Other times, these things aren't metaphors, but they're a projection from a, a mainstream organization, often a religious or 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 political organization that's that's being held unaccountable and the accountability is being put on the shoulders of entirely innocent people. This is what happened with the witch crazes throughout Europe. This is probably what happened uh, with the suppression of, of the Knights Templar centuries ago, where the church was concerned with a banking and a military organization that was rivaling its own power. So they were described in terms that later were, were recycled in, in, in more modern language in connection with the so-called uh, a satanic panic. So um, these, uh, you know, actual acts of injustice, actual acts of, of violence, actual acts of 
of harm to other people, including the most helpless among us, uh, get uh, swept um, off to the margins, get ignored, uh, get unreported, uh, because we've decided that there's a a simpler, more convenient, um, less congenial seeming uh, enemy, you know, out there somewhere. And uh, we pursue that hidden enemy. You know, I often speak against conspiracies or conspiracy theorizing. And the first question people always ask me is, hey, you know, how do you define that? How do you define conspiracies? How do you define conspiracy theorizing? And it's very simple. I define the term whenever I use it, and I define the term all the time. It's man's perpetual hunt for a hidden foe. It's man's perpetual hunt for a hidden foe. And when that foe is sought, that foe is almost always found. And it's almost always found among people who are too weak to defend themselves, whether it's witches in the Middle Ages or whether it's art students uh, or, or working class daycare workers, you know, during the satanic panic, uh, we tend to choose our foes real easy. Uh, and that's an ugly aspect of human nature. That's an aspect of human nature that I inveigh against. And, uh, so when people go looking for a hidden foe, they find one and they usually find one among the defenseless. Well, certainly the accusation of ritual child abuse has been hurled at Jewish people for centuries, and occasionally amongst uh, viewers of this channel, I hear it today. That's a very, very good point. And these tropes get recycled century after century after century. Um, They're very polarizing. They're very, in a prurient way, sort of reassuring because they seem familiar. They seem familiar because they're familiar by dint of repetition. Uh, when we repeat certain tropes, accusations, uh, certain language, sometimes spiritual language, sometimes language about somebody else's bad doings, um, it sounds familiar. And because it sounds familiar, it sounds persuasive. But it's familiar only by repetition, not by actual verification. Now, you've written about, uh, I guess I would call it a code of ethics that you live by. And I, I think this is very important because many people assume that the whole idea behind uh, Satanism or other non-Christian religions, it could be the worship of Kali or the worship of Shiva or Islam, uh, is uh, that the whole point of it is to violate ethical standards. Uh, the only thing I want to violate are, are tropes, are ethical tropes, um, are vocabulary that's unverified, that's clipped and pasted from translations of translations of translations of spiritual literature and, and winds up becoming a kind of Bartlett's book of quotations of uh, a, a good behavior, but is untested, unverified, and very often unapplied. Uh, I think it's very important that the sensitive, searching person uh, verify and work on and hone his or her true sense of code, uh, a code of ethics and, and behavior, uh, as well as truth to the extent that, that, that it's possible to know in this world uh, today. I'm not interested in decisions that other people have made. Uh, I'm interested in the decisions arrived at by the act of a seeker. Uh, classical, ethical, spiritual literature, as well as works of art, can be a help, can be a guardrail, uh, can be a source of assistance. Uh, but these things should not be seen as a, a, some sort of torch that you sit under for warmth and light and you never move. Um, my set of ethics, and I appreciate your pointing that out, my code of honor, call it what you will, 
consists of basically three things, and it's very simple. Uh, the first is uh, reciprocity, a cosmic reciprocity. You might call it karma, although I think karma takes on a vastness and a degree of perspective that it's very difficult for the individual to, 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 to understand, to get at, to wrap one's arms around. I do view reciprocity as a central uh, ethic of, of, of my life. I do think that there is a basic human wholeness, which is a almost a necessary conclusion to come to if one believes, as I do, that humanity has an extra physical life and that there is some non-local source of intelligence. The ancient Greeks used to call it nous or a higher mind. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the oversoul. Emanuel Swedenborg called it the divine influx or the divine inflow. Some people call it infinite mind. That is part of my outlook. And if I take that outlook seriously, then it stands to reason that there is some kind of human wholeness. So what I do to another person ultimately, and maybe even not in such an ultimate faraway sense, but more locally, is done to myself. Poison a lake, I'm poisoning the lake that I drink out of. You can extrapolate from there. So a cosmic reciprocity is absolutely at the center of my code of ethics and honor. Uh, second of the three is... Nonviolence, and by nonviolence, I don't mean abstaining from self-defense. I mean doing nothing to strip another person of his or her right for uh, for self potential, his or her own search for highest potential that I claim for myself. So it means doing nothing to the degree that I'm possible, that's possible, uh, to objectify, humiliate another individual or another community. We're not always in touch with ourselves. We're shot through with negative emotions. We're incapable of evaluating ourselves on the scale of empathy and spite that I was describing earlier. So it's asking too much of the individual. It's asking too much of myself to always know when I'm behaving negatively towards somebody. But my ideal is nonviolence. Again, not abstention from physical self-defense and not just physical nonviolence, but doing nothing to deprive another person of the same search for highest potential that I claim for myself, which again means not humiliating or objectifying another person or community, not dehumanizing another. And third and finally, I am the sole subject of my experiments. And that, that, that is a very hard one uh, ethic. Uh, I do not have a right uh, to experiment on or, 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 or play chess uh, with the life of any other person. You know, people sometimes say to me, you're making a huge mistake, you know. You're going over to the dark side, you're doing this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, my response to that is twofold. First, again, let's be real careful here not to use vocabulary words that come out of entertainment. Let's be real careful here not to use vocabulary words that we've arrived at just by repetition. Repetition doesn't verify. Uh, repetition just renders something familiar so that it sounds true. So that's one. The two is I take responsibility for that entirely on myself, entirely on myself. If I discover something positive and powerful, then uh, another person uh, can take part in what I've discovered. I'll share it just like I'm doing on this interview today, uh, just like I do in my writings. If what I discover uh, results in something else, then um, I'll serve as an example to my neighbor, you know, but I take responsibility for myself and myself alone in my experiments, and I ask no one else to be part of them. Not long ago, Mitch, I did an interview 
uh, with my friend James Tunney, and we talked about the great artist August Strindberg, a playwright, a painter who wrote a, an occult diary for 13 years of his life. And uh, as I recall from his biography, one of his best friends was a Satanist. And at one point, uh, Strindberg wrote that when you venture into the occult, if you don't have a some kind of a grounding, and I think by that he he meant uh, a grounding uh, uh, in ethics, a grounding, a connection with a higher force, maybe Christ. Uh, he said you're liable to be overwhelmed by dark forces. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I've wrestled with that very question, and it's changed for me over time. If you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have agreed wholeheartedly with Strindberg and said, absolutely. When you're going on an occult journey of any sort, uh, occult being from the Latin occultus, meaning hidden or unseen, a spiritual journey that goes outside of the doctrinal barriers of any congregation, when you're going on an occult journey of any sort, I used to argue, it's necessary to have some work of classical religious or ethical wisdom at your back, whether that be the Beatitudes or the Bhagavad Gita or the Tao Te Ching or you know, something else, you know, whatever meditations of Marcus Aurelius, whatever it is, because that's, that's your set of guardrails. I have changed my mind about that. I've changed my mind about that because I think that we too often lean upon these unverified familiar by association, familiar by repetition, translations of translations of translations of spiritual works that, that, that are based entirely on someone else's decision and experience that are also based and are affected by the social strata from which they were developed. It's important to understand every religion, whatever universal truths it may contain, is, is the work of human hands. And it's impossible for human hands that are fashioning religions over the course, very often of centuries upon centuries, uh, to not be responsive in some way to the social situation that the end user is experiencing. So, for example, you know, the Vedas speak extensively of non-attachment, non-identification. Well, they were also written in a, a, a social milieu in which caste uh, uh, structure was so calcified that you could no more expect to exit the caste into which you were born than you could to walk on the surface of another planet. So to some extent, uh, religions, the Vedic tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, later Buddhist tradition, and, and other other expressions um, deal with the the profound difficulties of the human situation, especially as experienced in antiquity. There is, in many societies, greater human fluidity today. I think everybody would recognize that. So, yes, there are universal truths, and and I would argue there are also uh, local truths, socially conditioned strictures, as I was referencing before in connection. Uh, with the Hebrews, you know, struggling for survival in the Mediterranean. So it's very important to me that people verify things for themselves in the truest and fullest sense, which doesn't mean that I am able to let loose of everything that's required of me in this life. There are all kinds of things that are required of me in this life, including paying the electric bill that allows you and I to have this conversation, and then many, many, many things that attend to that. Uh, so there are 
there are many things at, at which, uh, without suffering unacceptable consequence, I'm not at liberty to just dispense with uh, in this life. But in terms of my ethical and spiritual search, I think that's an area of absolute freedom, provided I'm the sole subject of it. So what I described to you as as my set of ethics, for example, it might be inspired by or abetted by classical works, but it is my own. It is where I am today. It's the ground that I stand on. And I feel less orthodox on the question of one absolutely having to have a piece of ethical, classical, religious literature at his or her back before embarking on this journey. For me, the journey has no preconditions, although obviously there are things that we have to abide by in this life to uh, to get by in the physical world and the communities that we function in. Well, Mitch Horowitz, this has been a very heartfelt and profound conversation. I'm delighted to have it with you. I know we've just scratched the surface. Let's keep the conversation going. I think it's a very important topic. Mitch, thank you so much for being with me. Appreciate it. And uh, it's one of the great pleasures of your show uh, to be able to discuss uh, topics like this uh, in, in such an open forum. And I appreciate it. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.